According to some surveys, approximately 1 in 10 people have felt attraction to the same sex. 9% of men, 14% of all women, which means that it is very possible that you have felt attraction to the same sex. And if you have never felt it, well, grab 10 of your friends and odds are at least one of them has. And this, this is not a new or recent phenomenon. Same-sex attraction, homosexuality, has been around for centuries and exists across the world. The ways in which we manifest it, whether we consider it a part of our identity like we frequently do in the Western world, whether it is accepted, whether it's acted on or not, or how and in what context it's acted on, those things have changed over time and vary from culture to culture, but the feeling has been around as long as we have. And the numbers are showing that it is not a negligible amount of people who feel it. The next two episodes are all on the science behind it. This is an inexact science. My name is Lisa Cantrell. Here we go. Um, penguins, birds, rhesus monkeys. This is Chuck Roselli. Homosexual behavior has been recorded in over 400 species, right? Chuck is a scientist, and in the early 2000s, he was conducting research that was making waves in the public media. How much of an explanation do you want? He had basically found a potential cause for homosexuality. I'm interested in, in the way sex differences in the brain develop. At least yeah. in some mammals. I've been studying this unique group of rams that were homosexual, and I studied the neuroendocrinology. So Chuck's research has been spun in different ways. It's been controversial for different reasons. And I want to present this accurately, but I also want to tell you that I think this is really exciting. And so I'm going to give you the high points here. And then at the end, I will tell you all the ways in which this may not be the silver bullet in understanding same-sex attraction in humans. But for now, indulge me. That wasn't very clear, but... Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So here's what happened. In the early 2000s, Chuck was a part of a research team, a team that was looking at sheep in Idaho. Scientists in Idaho were really agricultural scientists. They worked at the USDA field station. And this is a field station that had a flock of uh, 4,000 head of sheep. So these scientists in Idaho were actually interested in making their sheep more productive. One of the things they were interested in is libido in rams. They wanted to see what they could do to make their flocks reproduce more. And something they had noticed was that, well, there were these rams that were just not interested in reproducing with females at all. And what they found out was that as many as 25% of these rams, even after extensive tests with females, weren't mounting them. And in fact, not only were these rams not mounting females, some of them were actually mounting other male rams. They were homosexual. This was not a novel finding per se. We knew before this point that, yeah, lots of animals show same-sex behavior, and so it's not surprising that sheep do as well. Sheep actually show a wide variation. Eight to ten percent of them are homosexual. About 60 percent of them are heterosexual. Another 10 percent are asexual, and that leaves, what, 
30% as being attracted to both males and females. And to be clear, this is a naturally occurring phenomenon. These sheep have not been tampered with, so this is just natural variation in their species. And when Chuck came onto the scene, he saw this exciting opportunity to begin to ask why. Why might there be this natural same-sex preference in some of these animals? Because it was still an outstanding question as to whether this was environmental, maybe something that had happened in the adolescence of these animals, or whether it might be something that had happened before birth. But where do you even start to look when trying to understand their sexual preferences? Chuck already had some ideas about what to look for in these animals. And to get a handle on what Chuck was about to try, let's back up a few years. Before Chuck got involved with the Idaho Sheep Project, he already knew something that had been floating around in the scientific literature, something involving differences in the brains of animals, which might be related to sexual preference. In about... 1984, Roger Gorski at UCLA looked at rat brains. When they were looking at the preoptic area, they saw clusters of cells. Roger Gorski, this scientist, was basically poking around in the brains of rats and was looking specifically at this region in the brain that is right at the hypothalamus, which is kind of at the top of the brainstem. It's called the preoptic area. That there was a cluster of cells in the preoptic area that was larger in males than in females. This idea that a structure could be different between the sexes was referred to as being the sexually dimorphic nucleus. Okay, so look, Gorski found that all rats have this cluster of cells at the top of the brainstem. And what he saw was that the size of this cluster of cells was different for male rats and female rats. In the male rats, he saw that this cluster of cells was large, And in the female rats, it was small. So essentially, the cluster of cells could be large or small, and whether it was large or small appeared to align with whether or not the rat was male or female. Now, Gorski called this cluster of cells in the rat's brains the sexually dimorphic nucleus. This is a semi-technical term that simply means that there are two main possible structures, big cell cluster or little cell cluster, and that this part of the brain differed between the two sexes, so that's why it is sexually dimorphic. All right, so who cares? Big deal. There's this part of the brain that looks different between male rats and female rats. Why does that matter? Here's why it matters. Because this part of the brain is different in males and females, there's reason to think that it might have something to do with reproductive behavior, and it might have something to do with sexual preferences. Now, Fast forward a couple of years later, after Roger Gorski's rat study, in 1991, there was another study. But this one wasn't with rats. It was with humans. And it wasn't between men and women, but rather... Straight and gay men. It received a lot of attention. Chuck is talking about research conducted by a man named Simon LeVay. He um, used post-mortem brain samples from men that had died of AIDS and men that didn't. And... His observations showed that a nucleus in the anterior hypothalamus of the human brain called INA3, which is the third interstitial nucleus of the anterior hypothalamus, was twice as large in straight men as it was in gay men. Simon, who, just as a side note, was himself gay, cut open these men's brains after they had died and looked at the INA3 region of the brain 
and found that it was different between gay and straight men. The trend was there that, that it was larger in straight than in gay men. All right, so here's the thing. In human beings, we also have either a small or large cluster of cells right above the brainstem in the preoptic area, just like the rats. However, in humans, we call it the INA3. In rats, we called it the sexually dimorphic nucleus, but it's basically the same thing. In humans, just as in the rats, it can be either large or small. And what we know is that it is typically large for males and typically small for females. What LeVay found that was absolutely groundbreaking was that it is also small in homosexual males. So, by 1991, here's what we knew. The special cluster of cells in the preoptic area of the brain is large in men, small in women, and it is also small in homosexual men. So LeVay reasoned that this cluster of cells may not really be about whether you are a man or a woman, but may actually be related to whether you are attracted sexually to men or women. Because heterosexual men had a large cluster of cells, it seems plausible that a large cluster means you are attracted to females. Likewise, because the women and the homosexual men in LeVay's study had small clusters of cells, it seems possible that a small cluster leads to being attracted to males. We, however, did not know whether the size of the cluster was causing the sexual preference. But at the very least, we saw for the first time that sexual preferences could be seen in the brain and that there was some sort of biological thing going on here. So Chuck knew all this research already, and when he got the opportunity to study the homosexual rams, the first thing he did was to ask whether these rams also had a small cluster of cells, smaller than the heterosexual rams. So Chuck goes into this population of Idaho sheep. He finds the females, the heterosexual males, and the homosexual males. We looked at their brains, and we found that, that the cluster of cells in the preoptic area was larger in heterosexual rams than in homosexual rams, and the, that cluster was, was similar in size in homosexual rams as in females. Now this is exciting because it means that there is a cross-species finding here. Both humans and now sheep show brain differences between homosexual and heterosexual individuals in roughly the same area of the brain. What we didn't know was whether this was causal. That's always a, uh, the big question that you want to ask. Is it, is it really causal? There are two possibilities. It is possible that this cluster of cells in the brain gets bigger over time as the male rams engage in sexual activity with females. And for the rams that don't engage in sexual activity with females, the size of this cluster may stay the same or get smaller. This would mean that the behavior of the rams is determining whether the cluster is big or small. However, the other possibility is that the animals are born either with a big or small cluster of cells and that the size of the cluster is causing them to be attracted either to males or females. We reason that if it's causal, it should precede the behavior. It should be there before the behavior. Which so came first, the chicken or the egg? So we looked in, in fetuses just a week or two before they were born. What they found was so exciting. Chuck says that when they cut open the baby sheep's brains, you could already see that the cell clusters were different sizes before they were even born. 
That means that the size of this cluster of cells was not being controlled by whether the animals engaged in sex with males or females. And that, that leads us to believe that um, it's actually more likely to be causal. The size was likely controlling the sexual preference of the animal later on in adulthood. Once we had learned that the cluster of cells in the preoptic area was developed prior to birth, we decided to see what controlled its development. What makes this part of the brain different before birth? It could be something like DNA. Maybe the blueprints for this brain structure, this cluster of cells, is hard-coded into the sheep's genes. Or it could be something about the environment of the womb that causes the cluster to be either small or large. So the first study we did was we asked whether or not testosterone regulated the size of this cluster of cells. Chuck says that they already knew that the hormones that circulate in the womb of a pregnant sheep differ from male fetuses and female fetuses. So a reasonable first place to start with this was to ask whether those hormones were actually controlling the development of the cluster of cells in the baby sheep's brains. So pregnant sheep were injected with testosterone twice a week for two months so that their fetuses could be exposed to that testosterone. A week or two before they would normally be born, we delivered them by cesarean section. We examined the brains of the fetuses. This is possibly the most exciting part of all of this research. Chuck and his team found that they could control the size of the cluster of cells in the brain through testosterone injected to the pregnant mother. That is, you could make the cluster of cells in a baby sheep either large or small, simply by giving the pregnant mother hormones. What they specifically found was that the timing of hormone exposure mattered. If you give a pregnant sheep testosterone early in her pregnancy, then her males will be born with a small cluster of cells, a size that might make that male baby grow up to later prefer other male rams. If you give a pregnant mother testosterone late in her pregnancy, it will affect her female offspring. So females born to that mother will have a larger than normal cluster of cells, which might lead to those female sheep being attracted to other females in adulthood. It may be very likely then that sexual preferences are caused, at least in part, by levels of testosterone in the womb before an animal is ever born. So where does this leave us? Is this it? It's all we need to know about homosexuality and same-sex preferences, that it's about hormones that were either born this way or not. It's in our brains. It's immutable, unchangeable. You simply have it or you don't. I don't think that that is the whole story. And here's the thing that even Chuck notes. You know, sheep are sheep. (laughs) And I think most of what we're studying relates primarily to sheep. But the idea of studying an animal model is that it it helps us frame questions that we can ask about humans eventually, hopefully, and and, um, helps refine our ideas for humans. I think this idea of early hormone exposure affecting our sexual orientation as humans likely does hold some truth. I totally believe that, and that is why I find this research so interesting. However, humans are so incredibly complicated. And we need to remember that what we see in these sheep and in other animals is a sexual preference, a preference for who to mount and copulate with. I don't want to be overly graphic here, but here's the thing. This is all about a very primal, instinctual, reproductive behavior. Humans clearly also have a sex drive, 
but we are so much more than that. And further, we know from other research that our sex drive and our romantic love are not one and the same. They do overlap, but they are actually separate systems in the brain. What I think we are seeing here in the sheep and what they can tell us is really about the sex drive part of all of this. But if we want to understand our love, how or whom we love, attach, care for, have emotional connections with, this research will not tell us everything. Same-sex preferences in humans, I think we will find, is more complicated than just brain structure differences. In the final part for this series, we'll talk about trying to understand what we have for so long deemed our sexual orientation, possibly more in terms of a love orientation. Thank you to Chuck Roselli for contributing to the science side of things, and to Daphne Liu for helpful feedback on this episode. The music that you heard came from Follies. And Inexact Science is supported by a grant from the Association of Psychological Sciences. If you like this episode, if you learned something, please pass it on. You can find us on Facebook, like us, and stay updated on things. Or you can find me on Twitter at Lisa, Lisa, Lisa Can. You can also find other episodes of An Inexact Science on iTunes or on our website, an inexactscience.com.